Hey guys, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is David Dorner, and I am the teaching pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it is so good to be with you. Our mission in this world is to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus for a lifetime or if your journey's just begun, we hope that this message will speak powerfully to your heart, that it will reveal something that God desires to cultivate in your life, and that you'll be drawn to the person of Jesus as a result. We hope these next few moments encourage you, challenge you, and inspire you to be who God has created you to be. We hope you enjoy it. Well, hey, good morning, Frontline. You guys ready to rock? I'm fired up. We're going to have some fun today. We're in a series, if you don't know already, called Christmas Scandals. So I need to ask you, does your family have any scandalous stories? Oh, we're going there. We're going, I can't wait. I'm going to share with you one of ours. This is my favorite one. Uh, so my grandma and grandpa, they met on a, it's sort of like a blind date. So obviously, I mean, decades and decades ago, my grandpa's dad owned an appliance company in Chicago, and my grandma's mom had a house in uh, Chicago, and her appliance broke. So needless to say, my grandpa's dad comes over to my grandma's mom's house, and he's helping with the appliance, whatever. Uh, and so he meets my grandma. And she's there, and uh, he goes, oh, man, do you, do you have a relationship? Or, like, do you have a boyfriend or anything like that? And she goes, no. And he says, well, my son is serving in the military. He's in Europe right now. Uh, he's serving in the army. And it's, like, during the Korean War. So he says, would you, would you ever want to meet him? And she says, sure. So this is how their relationship starts. They just write letters back and forth, like they're pen pals. I mean, it's so cool. So they're writing back and forth, back and forth, getting to know each other on a deeper level. Like, it's cool. Well, then, then they get crazy. And my grandpa comes back on leave, and uh, they had a relatively short courtship, but they decide, like, we're ready to lock it in. We're ready to cash in the chips and go, hey, we're, let's get married. So they get married, they elope, and it's like this awesome, cool story for everybody, except who? The mother-in-law. It's an awesome story for everybody except my grandma's mom, and she flips a lid for this reason. My grandma was 16 years old when she signed the dotted line to get married. 16 years old. So what do you think my, my grandma's mom did? She picked up the phone. She called the local sheriff. And she said, my daughter just married this guy, and I didn't give her permission, which was illegal. So she said, I want a warrant out for his arrest. So my grandpa is on leave, and he gets word, hey, your brand new mother-in-law just put a warrant out for you. And he goes, are you kidding me? My grandpa, one of the nicest, most kind-hearted men, he goes, okay, well, I'm just going back to where I was supposed to go. So he goes back to the fort that he was stationed. He gets there, and his commanding officer is waiting. He's holding this sheet of paper, and he goes, Dorner? I'll, I'll change some of the words. He said, what's this? And he goes, why is there a warrant for your arrest on my desk? And he looks at him, and he doesn't offer any more of an explanation. He just says this. Well, I got married, sir. And he looks at me and he goes, and it's your mother-in-law? And he goes, yep. He goes, enough said. Get back to work. Throws it down. He took care of it. Is that awesome or what? He went back. He called up the sheriff. He's like, you can't have him. He's property of U.S. government. Take it up with them. Click. <laughs> Boom. I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. 66 years later, I come at some point. I mean, this is my favorite story. I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. They've been married ever since. Grandkids, great-grandkids, this expansive family. I mean, here's why I love that story. That's a scandalous story. I love that story because often scandalous stories 
can turn into something amazing if we will allow God to have the pen for our lives. Often some of the best stories we've ever heard, the best stories we've listened to, the best stories we've been a part of had really rough beginnings. That's the story from my family. I was thinking, this was actually really funny. Last night I was like, wow, my grandpa had an arrest warrant out for him. That's cool. And then I was like, wait a minute. Both of my grandpas have had arrest warrants out for them. Uh Uh-oh. That's like you just start thinking, anyway. (laughs) I don't know where I was going with that. It was really funny. I'll tell you the other one now because we got time, right? Uh, My other grandpa was a speeder. He was a race car driver. And uh, the guy could drive. I mean, he drives fast. So on family vacations, he drives. They're out in like Arizona. He does this awesome move. I didn't tell this first service, but since we have time, why not? First service, they're driving. They're out on the highway. He is cruising, right? Nothing like going 95 miles an hour in a minivan with your family. And he is hauling down the highway. A police officer clocks him and pulls out. And my grandpa does one of these old, you know, speed up past the semi, get in the right lane, jog over one more lane. And just as that cop's coming in the left, he hits the brakes. It was awesome. He did get pulled over. He did get a ticket. He never paid for it. And they put a warrant out for his arrest, and this is his, uh, this is his stance. I'm just never going back to Arizona. <laughs> this is my family. This is so cool. Does your family have scandalous stories like that? Oh, I love this. So here's the deal. Let's jump in. We're going to look at a scandalous story in the Bible today, okay? And it's got parts like that. It's got people like, you did what and with who and when and what are you talking about? The story we're diving into actually starts with the genealogy. So Matthew chapter 1, it says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, etc., etc., etc. Matthew's setting up, this is who Jesus is. This is who he is, and this is the line that he comes from. These are the people that played a role in his story, and lineage was important. Because lineage, especially when it comes to kingship, lineage says you have a right to the throne. So Matthew is articulating, this is Jesus' right to the throne. This is his lineage. This is who preceded him. These are the stories that were crafted and grafted together that led to the Messiah that they anticipated. So the two that stick out that we're talking about today are this. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was, say it, Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was, say it with me, Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. We're looking at two women today in this story that just, their stories, it'll blow your mind if you don't know them. So maybe you've been a Christian for 10 minutes, maybe you've been a Christian for a decade, maybe you've been a Christian uh, for your entire life, or maybe you're not at all. A lot of us have no idea who these two women are. So today, we're going to dive in. We're going to look at these two stories, and it is going to be a ride. So check this out. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, he's the leader of the Israelite people, secretly spent two spies from, I don't know how to say that. I'm not going to pretend like I do. I'm not going to be a scholar, and I don't want to get bleeped out online. So however you think it's pronounced, there you go. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Time out. This is a scandalous story. So God's chosen people, the Israelites, God delivers them you know, from Egypt. Moses is leading these people, and then Moses dies, hands the reins off to Joshua. So he's now the leader. Joshua tends two spies, two of his men, to go to enemy territory within the walls of Jericho. And whose house do they end up at? A prostitute. I, I'm not making this up. It's scandalous. It doesn't look good. Fair enough. 
man, the room got so quiet. Did you get quiet at home? I, it's like, oh, what did, the text doesn't say they did anything. The text doesn't say, but like notice the association with someone, with someone of her profession. It's enough that the writer of the text says, Are you, you paying attention here? Look at who God is grafting into the story. So important, so important. So they go to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Oh, go ahead and go back one. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Go to this next one. But the woman had taken the two and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You might catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. She lies to her own people. She lies to her own government, to her own king. She literally puts her life on the line for these two strangers. And the question we have to ask is this, why? Why would you risk everything? This, this is your people, this is your society, this is your livelihood. This is, why would you risk everything to two people that you had just met? God, when he spoke to Joshua, the leader of the Israelite people, he said, I'm giving you this land. And God had said that before to his people, like, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to deliver this for you. He'd provided for them. He'd protected them. He had led them. I mean, God was so involved in the Israelites' history. So for, for Joshua to hear from God, I'm giving you this land. I'm giving you Jericho. Joshua took it and, and he believed it. He had faith that it would happen. In fact, when he sent the two spies, he was scoping it out to go, okay, Lord, we're ready. I'm just collecting all of the information I need, but I, I believe you. You've given us this land. So these two men go and they interact with Rahab and she is an outsider by every stretch of the imagination. She's an outsider professionally. So what she does for work in that society, even though it was uh, commonplace or even though like it was allowed, you, you self uh, you put yourself in a category for everyone else who kept you at a distance. I mean, she really demoted herself, but it often came from like a place of desperation or a place of brokenness. What we find out too, she doesn't have a husband. So, so in a culture that's largely male-driven and patriarchal-focused, she's an outsider. She's not married. We don't know why. Her house is literally on the outskirts of the city. Jericho had these giant walls that were built up. If you've ever seen Veggie Tales, you would know what I'm talking about. These giant walls that are built up to fortify and protect the city. And her house is on the way edge of the city, like it literally butts up next to the wall. So she's on the outskirts geographically. She's on the outskirts professionally. She's on the outskirts relationally. And God chose her. Isn't that awesome? God didn't choose the one in the middle. He didn't go after the king. He, he didn't go after, and he, he said, I'm, I'm going after her. The, the fact that the two spies ended up at her house was not an accident. It was God grabbing the pen of the story writing. He's going, watch this. So they go to her house, and then here, here's this conversation that they end up having. Before the spies lay down for the night, 
she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up water, the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. What's so interesting about that line is if you read in the book of Joshua right before, as God is talking and speaking to Joshua, he says over and over and over, Joshua, take courage. Joshua, take courage. Joshua, take courage. Take courage. Take courage. And when Rahab is speaking to the people who have courage, she said, our courage is gone. We have none. For the Lord your God is in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. What, what just happened there is significant. What, what happened was she interacted with two of God's people and came to the conclusion that my interaction with God's people and the God I've heard about are the same. And it led to this faith being birthed inside of her. It led to her saying, this is worth risking everything. This is worth forsaking, forsaking my family, potentially. It's worth forsaking my city. It's worth forsaking my, my security or my safety or, or what's familiar or comfortable. It's worth sacrificing everything. Because who she interacted with being those spies and the God that she had heard about, she said, I, I'm putting my faith in him. She doesn't even know if she's allowed to be. Right now, as it stands, she is an enemy. God's people, right, these two spies, simply could have looked at her and they said, you're on your own. This city's gonna burn and walked out and left, but they didn't. Because their character and how they held themselves and how they interacted was, was, with, was congruent with who God was. And they, they say this. She says, give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Here's what the men say, our lives for your lives. You've saved us, we save you. The men assured her, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Nobody's disputing what God is gonna do. Both of them have arrived there. Both of them conclude. Both of them put their faith in what God had said. And, and yet both of them are on opposite sides. And Rahab says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving this. I'm leaving what's safe. I'm leaving what's comfortable. I'm leaving what's familiar. I'm leaving my people, my city, to align with God. Because he's real. Because he's true. Because I see how he treats his people. Such a significant insight coming from someone who was largely mistreated in her society. So she's saying, can I be on your team? Here's what happens, the rest of the story, uh, she actually hangs out this scarlet rope, this red rope that couldn't be missed, hanging out of her window down the wall so that when Joshua's people, the Israelites, when they come in uh, and they're ready to take the city, they'll know who she is. Don't know where she is. This red, this scarlet that sticks out has marked them for salvation. 
They're being saved from the destruction that is coming. So here's what happens. God sends the Israelites to Jericho. Jericho's got these big walls. And he says, you're not going to take this city like you would normally take a city. What I want you to do is I want you to get the Ark of the Covenant, the place you know, where, where God's presence literally resided among the people. And he said, I want you to walk around the city, the entire city with all of your people once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, do it seven times. So this is what the people do day after day after day after day. Catch this. It wasn't immediate destruction. It wasn't God saying, I'm just going to destroy, I'm just going to pummel, I'm just going to crush these people. It was God giving these people an invitation to do what Rahab had done. Open the city gate. Turn from their ways. Acknowledge Yahweh, the God who is, the God who cares for his people. For six days, they kept walking around and around and around, and not one came out of the gate. So on the seventh day, they do it seven times. God says at the end, give this big loud shout. Blow your trumpets, blow the horns, do, do everything. Make a ton of noise, and when you do, the walls will fall. That's what happens. And they take the city, but not before they rescued Rahab and her family. Her story is mind-boggling. I mean, it's just powerful. Like, like you can see God's fingerprints all over it. And God's going, this is why I want Rahab a part of my story forever. It's because of her heart. It's because of her trust in me. It's because of this relationship that I long for with her. God saves. I mean, think about how easy it would have been to destroy an entire city. But God goes, nope, I'm going to save her. And I'm going to save those that she loves. So important where we're going today. I don't know if it's on the screen yet or not. But God doesn't just see outsiders. He saves them. He does not just see them. It would be a gift in itself to go, oh, he does see me. God does acknowledge me. God does know I exist. He, he does see me, even though I'm broken like Rahab, even though I'm sinful like Rahab, even though I've made decisions that have put me on the outskirts of whatever, relationally, societally, whatever, even though I'm an outcast and an outsider, God does see me, and that would be a gift by itself. But then God takes it one step further, and he says, but I'll save you. So here's Rahab, an outsider, who is seen and saved. Her name is in the lineage of Jesus. And I can promise you this. Nobody on that day thought to themselves, you know, I bet the Savior of the world's going to write you in his book someday. Because why would you do that? Nobody would. It was such an afterthought from everybody's mind, and I bet you including hers. And yet God goes, no, no, I'm, I want to celebrate your story. I want to celebrate you. I want to celebrate what I am doing despite you, despite your world, despite your culture, despite sin, despite brokenness. I'm inviting you into the best story ever told. So here's what's really crazy. She joins the Israelite people. She gets married, right? I mean, in a culture that's like honor-driven, somebody married the, the enemy, the foreigner, the prostitute. Someone married her, and her name was Salmon, or Salmon, however you want to say it. He marries her, and together they conceive, they have a child, and his name is Boaz. 
We're going to talk about Boaz here in just a second. Her story started out rough, but the ending is just getting started. So the other person I told you about that we're talking about today is Ruth. So what what in the world do Rahab and Ruth have in common with each other that they're back to back, they're right next to each other in the lineage? Well, let's look. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. In the days when the judges ruled, which time out, what that means is in the day that people did whatever they want. Talking about God's people now. That literal phrase, just if you would read a commentary, says people did whatever they felt was right in their own eyes. So God's people, right? God delivered them, he protected them, he provided for them, he led them, he gave them their enemies, he walked them all the way to the promised land. And in the promised land, it was only took a short time later that God's people decided, you know, you don't know best, I know best, and I'm gonna do what I wanna do. So they start making decisions, they start sinning, and they start doing things outside of the way that God told them to do it, and it's significant. So in the day when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. One of the prophecies said, as long as you remain in in this land, um, God will provide for you like if you're obedient to him. So this is a double whammy. This is the writer saying, right, the writer of Ruth saying, the people were turning their backs on God because they were ascribing to whatever they wanted to do, and there was a famine in the land that God had promised them. So the people are wrong, and they're in the wrong. So a man from Bethlehem, have you heard of Bethlehem? It's Christmas week, come on people, here we go. A man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while. This word is sojourn, it means they're going there just for a short time. They're just escaping, even though God didn't tell them to. Even though they're already in the land that God told them to, they're going, you know, there's a famine, we're hungry, we're going to take matters into our own hands. So together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Moab and Israel hate each other. Hate each other. Moab was in a similar region as Jericho. So to move back out towards the wilderness was this active like, okay, God, I'm taking this, we're doing it my way now. So they moved to Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. So we don't know why. We don't know why he died. We don't know if it was the famine. We don't know if he got sick. We don't know if he had a heart attack or a stroke. We we, we don't know. Here's what we know. Circumstances just got way worse for this woman named Naomi because their family was already struggling and now they just lost her husband. She lost her husband. The boys lost their dad. But it gets worse. So now her two boys marry Moabite women. One was named Orpah. The other one was Ruth. That's another no-no. God had said, don't, don't marry outside of Israel. And they said, ah, we're going to take two wives from Moab, from this enemy. It's it's like, again, when are we going to turn? When are we going to go back? When are we going to do it God's way? But they don't. They take two wives, one each. So one was Orpah, the other one Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. So now Naomi is left without her two sons and her husband. When I read a story like this, sometimes it's like you look at it from a third perspective or from the outside and you just go, 
you did it your own way. Those were your decisions. Like, God said do this, you went and did that, and then everything went horrible. Do you ever do that as a parent to your child? I told you not to do it this way. Then you wrecked the car. Sucks to suck. I mean, it's kind of, that would be, that's what, it's like, you did it, you live with it. Welcome to life. You know what I mean? Sometimes for me, I look at this and I go, how come God, or, or maybe not how come, wouldn't it make sense if God went, you screwed it up. I mean, I gave you a thousand opportunities. I gave you an out. I told you I sent prophets. I gave you the word. I gave you the Holy Spirit. I mean, I gave you, I, I gave you opportunity, 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 opportunity. I spoke to you. I, I led you. I woke you up in the middle of the night. I gave you unrest. I gave you a lack of peace. I, I literally did everything, and then you still went over here, and you still did this thing. What, all right, what do you want? You want me to feel bad for you now? Don't you think sometimes, like, if you were God, that's how you would be? All the parents should be nodding because you do it. You do it with your kids, and I know you do because I have one. God's not like that. He's really not. God gives second chance after third chance after fourth and fifth and 500th and 10,000th. It's like he, he's so full of compassion, and he's so full of grace and he's so full of mercy that it just erupts out of him. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. So here's Naomi. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two boys. She's in a foreign country. She has two daughters-in-law, of which there is no real familial tie other than her husband and sons, who are now gone. She's stuck. She is broken. She is empty and her future looks bleak. So she has a conversation with her daughters, and she says to them, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? She's going to go back to Israel. That's what she's decided. Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. In this culture, once you're married, you're in the family forever. And if a husband died, then there would be somebody else called a kinsman redeemer that would step in and take you on to continue the lineage of the deceased male. So she's looking at them and she's going, I can't, I can't help you. I, I can't do anything for you. And what, you're going to stick around for 20 years and wait? She's like, just go home. Take matters into your own hands. Go home. Go home to your own people. Take your fate, take your future into your own hands and make something of your lives. But she says, I'm going back to Israel. So here's, here's what she says. Uh, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. That tells you how deeply loved Naomi is by her daughters-in-law. They love her. They don't want to leave her, but Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. And her gods. So important here. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, she's about to do the exact same thing that Rahab did. 
Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. The exact same moment as Rahab. She goes, nope. Because yet again, the God that I've heard of and the people I've experienced who are his being her are congruent. And she says, I don't want to go back. I want him. I want my God to be your God. So she goes with her. They go back to Israel. She continues, when you die, I will die. Or where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. Be ever so severely if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Off they go. Back to Israel, she actually walks up and she walks into Bethlehem and the whole village remembers her. And they go, oh, Naomi, Naomi, like we're so happy that you're back. It's so good to see you. She goes, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Call me bitter. I left full, I'm coming back empty. I'm broken. My husband's gone. My boys are gone. It feels like we've lost everything. Don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. She walks into her community. Her and Ruth ascribe to the way that widows would have normally been taken care of. They go to the fields where harvesters are harvesting grains and corn and vegetables, whatever. They go to the field, and the rule was if anything fell to the ground, it was never to be picked up because that would be how the community provided for the widows, for the broken, for the desperate, for the hungry, for the homeless. It's, it's like, well, go to the field, and you can eat everything off the ground. So Ruth is out there collecting food, collecting grain, collecting things for both her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she gets the attention of an owner named Boaz. Remember Boaz from Rahab's story? Boaz was Rahab's son. So she gets the attention from Boaz, and, and the story continues on. I mean, catch this. Salmon and Rahab have Boaz Boaz and Ruth meet. Rahab and Ruth are mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. You know how long I've like heard this story? You know how long I studied this story this week? Even to finally sit and go, wait a minute. What? It blew my mind. It's okay if it didn't blow yours. That's all right. I can be excited by myself. We'll go to the next one. We'll keep reading. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, right? Don't, keep, don't hop place to place to place to place to place. Don't do, don't do that. Stay in my field. Stay in my field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Boaz is doing a couple things here. He's providing for her and he is protecting her because she's vulnerable. She's more vulnerable now than she's ever been in her entire life, and a great man named Boaz says, I know you're not mine. I know I don't have to do anything, but I'll protect you. Character of God, yet again, on display. I know you're an outsider. I know you're a foreigner. I know all of those things, but I'll provide for you. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? 
Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. I know you're an outsider. I know that. That's no surprise to me. And she's wrestling with like, what? But what? Like nobody else treats me like this. I know. But watch what happens. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. Boaz points straight to his heavenly father. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Again, the people of God and the character of God were congruent. This is so important. It's such a beautiful story. Because when the people of God match the character of God, people are saved. So here's what happens for the rest of the story. I'll just tell you, Ruth and Boaz, um, Boaz actually finds out um, that like he's one of the kinsmen redeemers of Ruth's family. So because, the, because Naomi lost her husband and two sons, the next in line, there was one other gentleman before Boaz. So Boaz, being an upright, you know, character-driven man, goes and he addresses the other man and he says, hey, you get the field of the, of the dead man. Do you want the field? He goes, yeah, I want the field. He goes, great. It comes with his foreigner Moabite wife. And he's like, what? I didn't know that. I'm not doing that. I can, I'm out. You take it. And he gives it to Boaz and Boaz says, deal, I'll take it. Because Boaz's character was in alignment and congruent with that of God's. And he takes her in, and this is how God writes the story. Boaz and Ruth, I think it's their great-grandson, ends up being the king of Israel, King David. God is going, outsider, broken, hurting, lonely, lost. I'm getting all of these people, and I'm grafting them in because they make my story amazing. Because what they can't do, I can do for them. And when they put their hope and their trust in me, I can redeem it. He's the only one who can. So why are both of these stories in the Bible for us to read today? Why are they both here? Because we have way more in common with Rahab and Ruth than Jesus. Jesus is going, hey, to be a part of my family, to be a part of my lineage, you don't have to be perfect. I'm perfect, but you do have to put your faith in me. You do have to come to me. You do have to be obedient to me. You have to give your life for me just like I gave my life, but I can redeem even the most lost, most broken, most scandalous stories. Luke 19, 10, I love this. Jesus actually says it to his disciples, and he says this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God does not just see outsiders. That's the scandal of Christmas. God does not just see outsiders. He saves them. So I'm going to invite the band to come on up here as we close. Uh, Who is it? I just need to ask you this question. Who is it on your heart that you feel like God is inviting you to go after? Who is it? Who, Who is it in your life 
that, that you're looking and you go, man, they, they don't have a relationship with Jesus or their, their life right now is just broken. Their life is struggling. They just got a diagnosis that they, they're wrestling through or, or they're struggling through a divorce or they're lonely or they're depressed. I mean, I, I love Christmas, but as a pastor, here's what I've learned about Christmas time. It is a very, very hard season for most people because it's a reminder of who's no longer there. That's a weight. That's heavy. That's hard. There are people who are struggling right now, people who are broken right now, all in our context, that God is actually inviting us to be stewards of him. Like the spies sent to Rahab. Like Naomi as she interacted with Ruth. Like Boaz, as, he, as he's a kinsman redeemer for this family, he didn't have to. Jesus is the same. That scarlet letter or the, the scarlet rope that hung outside of Rahab's window points to the person of Jesus. The other thing that was shed was the scarlet blood of Jesus hanging on a cross. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, he, he was one of them. He was family. Jesus is like, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. 2,000 years ago, I came to this earth as a baby. Kinsman, I became like you, became one of you to redeem you. The whole story, the whole purpose, the whole focus of Christmas is Jesus is it. So I, I sat with this this week and I thought about this. In the last two weeks, I think, I've heard multiple college students who have taken their own lives multiple people, even connected to people in this church who are dying of COVID or died of COVID. Uh, people who have lost their jobs, marriages who are struggling or fighting through divorce or the aftermath of it, um, troubling health scans, upcoming tests. I mean, like there is a weight that is felt right now heading into Christmas that is tangible. So if that's you, if you're coming in and you're going, Dude, this is heavy, I don't know what to do. I'm does God even see? Yeah, he sees. Does God even care? Yeah, he cares. He loves you. He died for you. He's our kinsman redeemer. And he says, I'm sending you out. Jesse talked about that. I'm sending you out to be my ambassadors, to be my representatives, to take the gospel, to be congruent with my character to go out into a world that is desperate to be redeemed. God says, I don't just see them, I will save them. And he's inviting us to be a part of it. Who is it in your life? Who is it that is desperate or lonely, depressed, struggling, sinful, who is it in your life that God is sending you to? Let's pray. God, we just come before you and we just thank you that you saw us and you went after us. That you saw us in our brokenness, you saw us in our pain, you saw us in our shame, you saw us in our weakness. Like you, you saw the absolute worst part of us and yet you said you're worth it. God, it's so hard for me to wrap my mind around you hanging on the cross and thinking about every single person who will ever live. And that was motivation for you to go to the cross, to die 
a brutal death to pay the punishment for our sin. God, thank you for your character. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your pursuit of us. And God, I, I pray for those in this room right now that haven't yet given their lives to you, that haven't yet crossed the line of faith. I pray, Father, that you would just work in them, that you would remind them you're a good God who loves his children, who provides for them, who cares for them, who protects them, who leads them, even despite their decisions. And God, anybody else in here who does have a relationship with you, I pray that you would give them a person right now. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker. Maybe it's a spouse or a significant other, a peer. I pray that you'd bring someone that desperately needs you to rewrite their story and that you would give us courage and boldness to share who you are to invite them to experience you maybe even this Christmas you don't just see outsiders God you save them and so we ask that you allow us to be a part of it we love you we're grateful for you we just pray all of this in the powerful and mighty and holy and perfect name of Jesus. And everybody said together.